10, 25 through 37. Because this is a very familiar passage, I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation this morning. Luke 10, 25 to 37. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. May God add his blessing to the reading this morning. We've been on this uh, series talking about enjoying God. And today is the day when the record screeches to a halt because we've been talking about enjoying God's forgiveness. And thank goodness. I mean, which one of us can identify with enjoying that? And we've talked about enjoying God's love and enjoying God's wisdom. And today it's enjoying giving away all of our stuff. And it's like, you know, the, the brakes are on. The truck is skidding to a halt because it didn't see the red light. We're like, time out. What on earth is going on here? What are we talking about? So this very famous story, which I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about today, um, but this very famous story starts with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is like one of the two big epic questions of humanity. And if you look at all religions, if you look at, sorry, I'm having a little bit of a wiring problem here. Uh, if you look at this question across cultures, and now I've made it worse, I don't know what to do. I'm going to try to go without it. It's probably going to lead to bad news here. Um, so if you look at these, these two questions, right, what's our purpose and what's next? Every great religion tries to answer this. Every culture has their own answers to these two things. And so we shouldn't be surprised that people come and ask Jesus the question, What's next? How does it include me? So in addition to this lawyer, there was also another guy who asked Jesus the same question. It happens in Matthew chapter 19. This guy comes to Jesus and he says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus takes a very different tact with this other man. He says, you know what to do. It says in the Old Testament, it says you have to 
honor your father and mother, you can't lie, don't commit adultery, don't murder, and he lists a couple of others, to which the guy responds, well, I've done all of these my whole life, which of course is a total lie, right? Because Jesus had just talked about, like, if you hate your brother, that's equal to murder. If you lust after somebody, that's equivalent to adultery. So Jesus really raised the bar of what it means to actually sin in these situations. And the guy's like, I've done all that. Don't worry about it. But Jesus, unsurprisingly, talks to the man in a way that he will understand. So Jesus sort of bypasses the argument of, no, you're actually really sinful. But he says to the man, you still lack one thing. He says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then come follow me. And it says that the guy walked away totally depressed because he was a man of great wealth. So the, the answer to this question for this man is not be better. There's no like box to check off. Going to heaven isn't simply just selling all your stuff and giving it to the poor. And then you've, you've exchanged your wealth for a ticket to heaven. That's not the answer at all. What Jesus is actually saying is if you want to go to heaven, you have to be willing to give up everything. If you want to go to heaven, you have to give up what you think your identity is. So in this case, it was this guy's identity was in being rich. And and Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, none of that matters. And he says to this lawyer, in essence, the same thing. You have to give up your identity as a moralistic man who has this system of values where you can just check off boxes so you can get to heaven. Once you've done all these things, once you have um, followed this strict adherence to the law, then you will get to heaven. See, being a Christian is not only a life-changing event, but it's also a life-encapsulating event. God doesn't ask us for all of our money. God doesn't ask us to follow all of the commands. What God asks us is to give all of ourselves to him. And ultimately, I think that's what this story is really about. But because this story starts with such an epic question, I think that we should assume that the answer is equally as epic. So today I want to investigate three questions. The first is, who are we in this story? Who are we in this story? Which of the characters should we identify with? Number two, what keeps us from acting sacrificially? So why don't we just do this? Like, why did Jesus have to say, you need to do this? What, what's unnatural about it? And thirdly, why does God tell us to live this way? So why is it important? But before I go further, let me pray. God, clearly, I and this church need you. God, may we honor you with our lives. May you give us the wisdom we need to glorify you. God, may we surrender our whole lives to you. God, open up our hearts and our minds to listen to your message today. I pray, God, that you would meet each of us where we are at. In your name I would pray. Amen. So, this would normally be the part of my sermon where I give you some great historical depth of insight on the story. I love doing that, and I think that it adds a lot to the story. But today I'm going to do the whole thing in just one sentence uh, because the, the historicity of this is not critical to today. 
And because I was told I can only give one sermon and not three, I will skip this part, uh, except for this one thing that you need to know. The Samaritans and the Jews, they hated each other. Their hatred was centuries old, as we can imagine, uh, ethnic strife. It goes back, it went back hundreds and hundreds of years. There's actually a civil war where the northern tribes of Israel split from the southern tribes. And they're here, Jerusalem uh, was in the south, and they still hated the people from the north. They thought that they worshipped wrong, they worshipped false idols, they thought that God had given them to their enemies uh, because they deserved it, and that's why they were destroyed. The irony of the whole thing is that the Hebrews in the south were really not any different than the Hebrews in the north. They worshipped different false gods. They were conquered by a different kingdom in, uh, in retribution for their sins and turning from God. But ultimately, they were very, very similar. But the Jews and the Samaritans would never help each other, really under any circumstances. Um, as a matter of fact, when some of the Jewish leaders were super ticked at Jesus, they called him a Samaritan. Like it was, it was an insult to be identified as an other or somebody not in that group. So that's it. That's all the history you really need to know for this particular story. So a long time ago, somebody thought it'd be a really good idea to put headers in our Bibles. And I was talking to my daughter about this last night, and I said, you know, when you read through Luke here and you're in chapter 10 and you see this little header that says the Good Samaritan, the author of the original text didn't actually write that. That's something that got written like just a few hundred years ago, probably like for lazy Americans who didn't know their Bibles all that well, but wanted to identify things very quickly. But this is not part of the original text. And one of the things that really annoys me about it is that I think it gives the wrong idea about what the story's about. Because I think that when we see the header, the Good Samaritan, it leads us to sort of feel like that's the character that we should identify with. But let me just assure you that this is entirely wrong. It is not the person that Jesus was hoping this lawyer would identify with. So the answer to this question, like who are we in the story, is actually central to how we understand the story. So who is this lawyer going to identify with? Well, by birthright, he can't identify with either the priest or the Levite. He wasn't born into the right tribe of Israel to ever be a priest or a Levite. So he couldn't identify with either of them. The priest was certainly not going to identify with the, or I'm sorry, the priest, the lawyer was not going to identify with the robber. That was for lawyers to do hundreds of years later. Just a little joke. If there's any lawyers out there, that is, that is not libel. Uh, so, you know, he's not going to identify with the robber. The innkeeper is sort of like a non-part of the story. Um, and this Jewish lawyer was certainly not going to identify with the Samaritan. So who's left? Well, the only character that's left is the one with no lines. He's the guy in the ditch. It was impossible for the lawyer to put himself in anybody else's shoes in this story. So as we think about this story and the lawyer's thinking, who am I going to identify with? What part of the story am I in? What is it that Jesus is insinuating as he tells this story to answer my question? It's the half-dead guy. So why is it that Jesus wants him to see himself in this, in this uh, character? And I think it's, there's two reasons for it. As one is, Jesus wants to turn the question from 
who should we help? So who should we help? When we ask that question, we can think of lots of reasons to cross people off that list, right? So there's like 7 billion people on earth. And if you were to ask the question, who should we help? We could start with like all the people who live more than 30 miles away from us and cross off, you know, 6.999 billion people and just be like, well, they're too far away to help. There isn't anything I can do. And then if you're asked the question, well, you know, who else could you help? You could be like, well, you know, I really can't help, you know, people who I don't know or people who will squander my gifts or people who don't care about me or people who are actively trying to destroy me or people who I'm not politically like or people who I'm not religiously like. And we could just start crossing off all these names of who should we help. And that is what this lawyer wanted to do. But Jesus says, you're looking at the question the wrong way. Here's the question that you should be asking yourself. If you were hurt, if you were half dead, if you needed help in order to have your life saved, who would you want help from? And that's a totally different question. Because if, if me, if Chris Kapiloff is lying half dead in a ditch somewhere, I would accept help from anyone. It wouldn't matter your political affiliation. It wouldn't matter your race, your identity, it wouldn't matter your social class, none of that would matter. I'm dying and I need your help. That is the question that Jesus wanted the lawyer to see. Not who's your neighbor, who would you accept help from when you needed it most? So that's the first reason that Jesus wants this man to identify as the guy in the ditch. And the second reason is Jesus wanted to show the man how incredibly broken he actually was. Because to God, we're all the guy in the ditch. Every one of us is broken beyond repair. Every one of us can't save ourselves. Every one of us, if left unattended, has a limited number of heartbeats left. That is our spiritual condition. To say that we're hopelessly separated from God is not too much. We can't save ourselves, and we needed an act of selfless service to be reunited back to God. Just like this guy in the ditch needed an act of selfless service to live, we need an act of selfless service in order to live. And just like the Good Samaritan didn't owe anything to the dying man in the ditch. God doesn't owe us anything either. We didn't do anything special to justify receiving help. And Jesus is saying to this guy, hey, you got help, and therefore if you want to show your true heartfelt gratitude to God, go and do the same. So what keeps us from acting sacrificially? My daughter and I were talking about this last night. I suspect because it was out after her bedtime and in a ploy to stay up, she said, hey, Dad, tell me about your sermon tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I acted sacrificially and told her about my sermon. She acted sacrificially and listened. But I said to her, you know, what do you think the definition of acting sacrificially is? She thought about it for a second, and she said, it's standing up to a bully when you know that you're most likely going to be bullied because of it? I thought that was a great answer. You know, what keeps us from doing this? 
And my guess is that there are hundreds of reasons for as many people as there are in this audience. We all have slightly different reasons for not wanting to act sacrificially. But uh, maybe we could rephrase this question um, as, you know, why do we keep hurting each other? Or when we see people hurt, why do we not do anything about it? So in this story, there's two kinds of destructive attitudes. So the first destructive attitude is that of the robbers. So there's these guys, and no matter what the cost to somebody else, they are going to get what they want. They are going to put their needs in front of others, and again, no matter the cost, they're going to go and take it. They see other people as a means to an end uh, instead of as God's created beings who are valuable and worthy of love. And I think that we probably all have taken the role of robbers at some point in our life, where no matter how much we're going to hurt people, there is some thing, there is some status, there is some item, there is some reason that we purposely step on somebody else in order to get what we want. So in that way, uh, although the people we interact with, we might not leave half dead, uh, I am sure that there are people that we have all interacted with who left us feeling as if we just ripped their heart out or they feel betrayed, or they feel whatever, because what we needed at the time was more important than their value. Secondly, and where I would suspect that we all suffer more, uh, the second destructive attitude is the priests and the Levites acted with indifference. Now, they may have had some, like, super bad reason to act indifferently towards this man. So, you know, they might have said, well, the man's half dead, which means the robbers might not be far away. And I don't want to get beat up by the robbers and end up in a ditch like this guy. So I should just run past him. Or, you know, maybe there was some sort of job reason. So if a priest or a Levite touched a dead body, they couldn't be in the temple for seven days. Um, it took them a while to become ritually pure again. And they might have said, look, I'm going to Jericho to perform the ceremony. If I do this, I won't be able to do my job. Um, Whatever the case is, this stranger to them was dehumanized to the point where they no longer felt the need to help. So in reality, they're really not all that much different than the robbers in that they see the man in the ditch wrongly. Because God sees the man in the ditch as a beloved creature that was worthy of his son's death and sacrifice. And ultimately, Jesus is saying that is how you need to see each other. And because God is the one who imparts value on all of us, the fact that God has imparted value on a stranger that we don't know means that they are equally valuable in God's eyes as we are to God. So I know that there's many of you sitting out in the audience today who are suffering because of the choices that other people have made. And I also know that there's all of you, including me, who have caused suffering for others. And indeed, I speak to one of you who has caused both hurt and has been hurt by others. So why do we act the way that we do? If we've all experienced this hurt and we've all experienced the guilt of hurting other people, why do we continue to do it? And I think we're often indifferent for a couple reasons. One is that sacrificing for others is really hard work. 
We don't have to pretend that it's easy. And also, sacrificing for others isn't always fun. It doesn't always produce euphoria. And I don't think that we need to pretend that it does. It's okay to say, you know, sacrificing for others is not like the part of my day that I look forward to the most. Seeing it for what it is is not, is not a dishonest thing. Um, but there's also all these other things that are like sort of true, but it leads us to the wrong conclusion. So, for example, oftentimes I think that we don't sacrifice because we think that people are going to squander our gift. And I can't think of a better example of this than when I'm in almost any city and you pull up to a stoplight and there's somebody with a sign and it says homeless. And the first thing that runs through my mind is if I give this person money, I might be perpetuating some sort of addiction problem. You know, I don't know. Should I just leave my window open? Should I just like pretend to be looking at something on my phone? Should I whatever? And then like, thank goodness, within 30 seconds, the light changes and we're off. Sometimes we think people are going to squander our gift, so we don't choose to get involved. Sometimes we think that our comfort or wealth is more important. You know, like if I sacrifice to give this person something that they need, then, then I'm not going to have what I need. And so, you know, why should I do this? Like, why can't they go out and work as hard as I have to get what they need? Then they wouldn't need anything from me. Sometimes we're desensitized because we see a lot of suffering. I remember... Uh, I took my daughter to New York City. I think she was six. And it was the first time she'd ever seen a homeless man. And it, you could just tell, like, it, it gripped her. Dad, what is this guy doing on the street? Dad, why does he have a hat in front of him? Dad, why isn't he looking at anybody? Dad, it smells really bad. What's happening here? But, you know, after you see, like, a few thousand homeless people, it becomes easier and easier to walk by homeless people. We get desensitized to what happens in our world. Or maybe the problem just seems so big that we can't even think to begin of how we would help. So there's 80 million orphans in our world. How do we go about taking care of 80 million orphans? I don't know. Like, what's the point in getting involved? There is a 0% chance that we're going to be able to take care of all of them. There's probably a 0% chance we could take care of millions of them. Maybe we just shouldn't get involved because the problem is so big. Or sometimes they're not big on a global level, but they're big on an individual level. Like, this person's a heroin addict. This person's a violent offender. What on earth can I do in order to help that? I can't help this person break their addiction to heroin. Their brain has already been chemically rewired. No amount of help is going to change that. Or maybe the problem is just so complex that we don't know where to begin. I was talking with my brother about gifts to Haiti, and one of the things that he said was, please don't send any more shoes to Haiti. All we do is put the shoe people there out of business. And then after all of our gifts dry up, now there's nobody there to sell shoes to anyone. A friend of mine by the name of Peter Greer runs a nonprofit called Hope International. And in one of his books, he talks about this church in America who just inundated with this village in Africa with chickens. It was super popular to send chickens abroad because they could lay eggs, they could produce meat. It was this way to just cure all of a village's problems. And so this church bought tens of thousands of chickens with incubators and all sorts of stuff, and they sent it to this 
village. And the first thing that happened is that all the people who had chicken farms went out of business because now everybody had free chickens and free eggs. And I don't remember exactly what had happened, but fast forward two years and all those chickens were gone. And all of the people who produced chickens through these sustainable businesses now were out of business. And so the village was actually less well off than they were before this rich church in America decided that they knew what was best to solve poverty. Sometimes the problems are just so complex, we say, you know what, I just don't know what to do. And so we do nothing. And the one that gets me, sometimes starting to help might get us in deeper than we really want to go. So if we think of a person's problems as a puddle and we're looking at it and we say, you know what, I'm willing to get ankle deep for you. But that puddle looks like it might be chest deep. And I just don't want to go swimming right now. I don't really have time for that in my life. So we say, "Ah, not today. Not today. You know, there's a lot of reasons not to give. There's a lot of reasons not to give. But I think that we should think about it this way. God had even more reasons not to give to us. See, when God decided to let his son be brutally murdered so that our debt could be paid in full, did he do it because we were so innocent that we deserved it? No. So, spoiler, all the answers to these questions are going to be no. Did he do it because he was more complete with us than without us? Did he do it because God had sinned and he was looking for a way to redeem himself? Did he do it because we had given God some great gift and he owed us? Was it because it was more comfortable for him to send his son to die that horrible death? Of course not. God sacrificed out of his unimaginable love for his creation. He sacrificed because we needed it in order to be whole. Not because he needed it in order to be whole. He sacrificed because that's his character. Greg preached a couple of weeks ago on Hebrews 12. In verse 2, the author writes, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Can you imagine describing crucifixion in this way? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Whatever reason we have... Not to help people. God had an even greater reason not to help us. And yet, thank goodness, none of those excuses were taken up by God. So why does God tell us to live this way? So maybe you're thinking out there in the audience, you know, how can we possibly be held to this standard? Like, obviously, there's a big difference between God and us. Why on earth should we live this way? So I would counter this argument by saying, this is what we were actually created for. We were actually destined to do good things. That's our destiny as people. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork, meaning we're created in God's image. We're like God. The God who came and sacrificed for us, God made us like him. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And here's the 
part that I find just to be amazing, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what does that mean? That means whether you identify as the robber, the priest, the Levite, if you identify as the lawyer, whatever it is, today can be the day where you can take God up on his destiny for you. Today can be the day where you say, you know what? I'm done being selfish. I am done looking at people with indifference. I am done taking from people what I need for me. And I want to hop on this train of doing the things that God prepared in advance for me to do. We can do this because we are created in his image. God tells us to live sacrificially. And here's the punchline for the entire sermon. God tells us to live sacrificially because it will produce the greatest amount of joy in our lives. This is how we are created to live. Because when we live the way that God designed us to live, we live our best lives. And that's not to say that they are going to be problem-free. And that is certainly not to say that living sacrificially for others is going to be easier than not living sacrificially for others. Sacrifice is just that. There is a cost to sacrifice. But there's a cost to a lot of things, right? God tells us you will be happiest if you are faithful to your spouse. And that's true. It doesn't mean that it's easy every day to be a great spouse, but it is how we will be happiest. And here's the same thing. God tells us we will be happiest if we sacrifice for others. We will experience the greatest amount of joy if we sacrifice for others. So, you know, the next perhaps logical question would be, can this kind of sacrifice, can this kind of sacrificial living actually change the world? Like, can we actually solve the problem of 80 million orphans in our world? Can we actually solve the problems of, of violence and drug addiction? Like, does this, does this really work? It seems a little like pie in the sky. But, you know, this is the way the early Christians changed the Roman Empire. Again, in my discussion with my daughter last night, of course, as the history guy I brought up, like, this is the way Christianity spread. My daughter said, well, actually, the textbook says that it spread because Paul went around delivering letters. So, well, you know, I'm not surprised that somebody wrote that in a history book. But reading letters doesn't change people's lives. What changed the Roman Empire was Christians going around feeding the poor, taking care of the sick, loving people that society thought weren't worthy of resources or love, taking babies who were destined to die because they were left on temple steps as unwanted children into their homes and raising them as their own children. These are the things that caused Christianity to spread through the Roman Empire. And within 200 years, the world's greatest empire went from Judaism being a small sect and a backwater part of the empire that nobody wanted to see or hear about to being the dominant cultural force and the greatest empire that the earth had ever seen. That is what living sacrificially can do to an entire 
culture, and empire. We can do that here. But my fear is that in the United States, we've boiled life down to, I tithe to my church. I've checked off the sacrifice box. I gave a couple of bucks to the guy at the home uh, on, the, on the street. I'll check off the generosity box. I listen to somebody's problems for five minutes in church. I'm going to check off the being a good friend box. Living sacrificially is changing our lives for the benefit of others. Please rise. I'll pray and give the benediction.